So a lot of it is to do with weighing uncertainties. Mm. Unfortunately, you know, climate change is a certainty according to science. Mm. Um, it's a certainty? Yeah. Okay. So we know for sure mm. it's going to happen if we don't um, stop pumping carbon into the air. Okay. But that's a logical thing. Mm. And logic, unfortunately, isn't a huge driver on our behaviour. Wow. <laughs> hey guys, this is Yuki and welcome to Toast It Up episode 29. Firstly, I'm so sorry for this voice. I've got a cold and I hope that this is not too distracting. Uh, you might find it a bit different from my usual voice. But don't worry, in the interview that I'm sharing today, my voice is not like this. <laughs> so, um, but so today, I'm really excited to share this interview I've done with Kate Jeffrey, who is a neuroscientist. She's a professor at University College London and she's also a climate activist. Last week, I've had the opportunity to listen to her talk related to climate change and human behavior. It was really interesting because she was incorporating her professional knowledge of neuroscience and psychology in a way that anyone can understand to explain our climate inaction. After her speech, she kindly agreed with me to do an interview, which is what I'm sharing today. During the interview, not only she introduced us the science behind why we are acting the way we are, but also she also shared with us her experiences of why she felt the need to take an action for this big problem, which is climate change. The breakdown of the interview is in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for tuning into my podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. So basically, like when I found you talking um, about, you know, like doing a talk, I was going to the gym and in front of the gym, um, you were speaking and yeah, I, I wanted to go swim, <laughs> you know, I wanted to go swim <laughs> and, and I heard like someone talking and so I was like, okay, so maybe I'll listen to it like for like three minutes um, and then I ended up staying like the whole talk, right. <laughs> I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. I'm oh, sorry if you missed uh, no, 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 I actually went to the swim, like okay. I went to swim like afterwards, so that's good. Okay. Um, but like what you said was like really interesting, so I kind of want to go over it again. And also I want to talk about, I want to ask you um, what, what you do and your activity and stuff. Right, in my day job. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm not so, normally a climate activist oh, okay. in, my, in my day job, uh -huh. I'm a neuroscientist. Oh, wow, okay, so um, do you... So you teach neuroscience at UCL? Yes, yeah, and I'm interested in the sort of the relationship between brain activity and, and sort of thinking. And, you know. mm. um, so that's why I'm in a psychology department, even I though see. we study the brain. So up here on this fifth floor, we've got um, laboratories for doing brain research, like actually looking at brain circuits. Oh, wow. So it's a bit different from what I was talking about. Yeah, definitely. I mean. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm ultimately interested in human thinking, why we yeah. do but it was so interesting because like you are kind of incorporating what you do like neuroscience or like psychology aspect into like climate change and how people think and so do you like how long have you been teaching at UCL? Um, uh, quite a long time about long time. 20 years I guess 20 years yeah, yeah so you've been here in London for 
20 years? Um, slightly longer. So I came to London in 1993 to do um, a postdoc, oh, which wow. is you know, pure research. So, uh-huh. so I did that for a few years and then got this job, which is a mixture of research and teaching. Mm. So yes, I've been here a long time. And, wow. <laughs> and I've learned, although I'm not a psychologist, I've learned quite a bit of psychology just from being in this environment. Um, okay. In fact, I learn much of it from the students I teach because we have um, small group seminars mm-hmm. where students present the research that they're doing, which is with other staff members. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also present you know, other types of presentation, like essays and so on about other things. And so, so over the years, I've learned quite a bit of psychology just mm. from, from my students. <laughs> That's really great. Uh, uh, do you teach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you teach like, undergraduates, undergraduates and like masters? What kind yeah, of people? Yeah, um, all, all of them. So all of them. Und- undergraduates, um, a few masters courses um, where I talk more specifically about the type of work that I do. So it gets a bit more specialised at that point. Um, and then I have um, PhD students as well. So. Cool. So you kind of mentioned, like, um, so you've been here in London for like 20 years and you said like the obviously like climate change, kind of like you could see, you could observe some like changes you know, in London. Like yeah. it doesn't have to be like climate aspect, but like it would be interesting because I, I came to London like five years ago. So obviously I can't really see much difference. Right, yeah. But maybe if there's anything that you kind of saw, you know, oh, this change... Yeah, well, so so I live just outside London in mm. this town called St Albans, and and um, I've lived there since nineteen ninety eight, so mm-hmm. twenty years, and um, I've just I've noticed changes, especially in the extremes of the seasons, so the depths of the winter and the height of the summer. Mm. So um, twenty years ago, in the depths of of the winter, um, we would have quite lo- quite long periods of frost. Okay. So, I mean, I don't remember exactly when it started, but it, it feels to my memory like it was sort of the end of November, beginning of December, where there would be night after night, it would, it would be icy, and mm. I'd get off the train and, and I'd go to my car to drive home and I'd have to scrape the ice off oh, the wow. windows, or, <laughs> and, or sit in the car with the engine on for a few minutes until the, the, mm. you know, everything cleared and so on and so on. Um, and it just has been the case that those periods of time have gotten shorter and shorter till now it's only like mm. a handful of days where I have to scrape, scrape ice off my car okay. um, the rest of the time it just hasn't been that warm um, and snow I mean we've never had a lot of snow but mm-hmm. it feels like it's getting rarer and then at the other extreme mm-hmm. in the summer I mean the thing that really got me involved in the climate movement was the mm-hmm. summer of 2018 oh, okay. um, which was very hot I've never experienced a summer like that since I've been here. 2018? Yeah, so you know, the temperature t- um, okay. went up to above 30, which for England is very hot, mm. and it stayed up there for um, several weeks. Wow. And, and this office that we're in right now that has mm. windows on, on two sides and sees the sun all day long, it just became uninhabitable. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> home and, um, and we went to Iceland for our summer holiday and thought, ah, oh, this oh, wow. is just brilliant. Yeah, are we, are we going to have summers now where we go somewhere cold yeah. instead of what the English have always done traditionally? Yeah, so true. I, I, I kind of remember like 2018 as well, like because I was in in UK, because that was last summer, like as in, yeah, not the one we just had, but, but yeah, 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 yeah. I remember I went to um, British Museum, and like most of the rooms were like relatively fine, but there was this room with the carpet. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I went, it was just, like. 
it's horrible and we're not yeah. adapted to it and it's quite humid because mm. you know we're an island so the, the air is always quite humid and, and it's very difficult in humidity to cool yourself naturally mm. um, so you, you just suffer um, terribly and the, the buildings tend not to have air conditioning because it's expensive mm. and um, we don't normally need it normally if anything we need heating mm -hmm. and so the summer is just miserable and I th I'm sure I'm sure it must be expensive for the economy I think productivity as a whole must mm. drop a lot and when it's really hot yeah. Um, and I flew, you know, to my shame as a climate <laughs> activist. I, mm -hmm. I have to fly quite a lot for work, and, and it was just really um, startling to look down over the English countryside and see it brown. Normally, it's green, you know, and oh. to see it parched and brown like that, it was really quite shocking. Mm. And that really made me think: this feels like the climate is noticeably changing, even to me within a relatively short space of time. Mm. Well, it's short someone of my age <laughs> <It's 20 laughs> one, one time 20 years felt like a lifetime now it feels like a very short time mm. um, so, and it, so, so it's quite frightening that it's accelerating and I see. not um, and nobody seems to be doing anything about mm. it so then I started to get really interested in why aren't we doing anything about it and mm. um, how did we get ourselves in this situation I see um, so you told me like you are in an organisation or is it what you are like taking initiative or like yeah so uh, so I at about, about that time mm -hmm. so so just after the end of the summer mm -hmm. the um, IPCC the intergovernmental panel on climate change released this report um, which really shook up a lot of people and I think it was the two things it was the summer followed by the report and in the report they said um, we have you know only a decade or so before um, to take to take quite strong action mm -hmm. before the changes become catastrophic and potentially irreversible mm. and that was really quite alarming and while I was sitting there fretting <laughs> mm. over what was going to happen um, suddenly in the newspaper appeared the reports of this new protest movement called Ex Extinction Rebellion mm. um, who just, just suddenly started appearing on my Twitter feed and, and, and everywhere I looked suddenly there they were and I thought this is, seems interesting because um, they're catching a lot of attention and they seem to have this way of working that's a bit different from um, other groups. Mm. Um, so I kind of you know, got on the web and learned a bit about them and the thing that struck me when I visited the web page was, was it says non-violent in, in very large letters and I thought well that's good because <laughs> <laughs> um, you want to protest movement that's not violent <laughs> um, and then I kind of read a, a bit about it and thought they seem intriguing so I'll, I'll get involved and, I, and mm. I just found myself getting involved and one of the things that they needed was um, people to do the, the science communication to try and mm. convey to the general public um, an understanding of what's going on because a lot of people don't really understand it they, they sort of know that the climate's changing they don't really necessarily un understand why or what the implications are or why um, people are concerned about it or even mm. whether it's real so a lot of people think it's just all a storm in a teacup and not really happening mm. so I found a sort of niche doing science communication I see and wow and yeah so there were like some, some things that I was especially really intrigued during the talk that you gave um, last, was it last Friday? Mm. Last, last Thursday, last Friday. Um, you talked about how people prefer to um, like prioritize like, short-term gain mm. rather than like long-term gain, even though like long-term success can be bigger. Mm. Um, can you <laughs> expand on that a bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so this is a very, I mean, it's not just people, it's, it's a really general, Thing. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, the, the brain has to, um, has to weigh out a lot of 
simultaneous demands on your mm. on your time. So you know you might be hungry, you might be thirsty, you need air, so you need to breathe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your children <laughs> might be ne- needing your attention. Your students might need attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know you've got longer term things like your house might need repairing, or you know this might need doing. And and so your brain has to kind of weigh up all of these competing demands, and it's got to. Um, it's it's got to sort of figure out the trade-offs. You know, if I don't um, eat right now, then obviously I will die. Yeah. But on the other hand, somebody else needs me right this minute, and I can probably delay eating for a few hours, and I'll be fine. You know. <laughs> um, so 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 it's got to sort of prioritize, and um, it tends to w- wait more more immediate concerns more highly than more distant concerns. Mm. And that's true, even if the um, even if the more distant concern ultimately is going to bring you a bigger gain, mm. um, you still nevertheless tend to downweight it. You downweight it more than you kind of quote mm. unquote should. Um, and there's all sorts of um, research that shows, you know, for example, people um, people would rather sort of do something that will earn them five pounds now than doing something else that won't earn them anything now, but will earn them ten pounds at some unspecified time in the future. Mm. Um, even though ultimately they'll get more money, they'd rather have the five pounds wow. here, here and now, and and it looks on the face of it irrational, mm-hmm. but economists you know have discovered that people are kind of irrational, and, mm. and um, they're trying to understand why did we evolve this tendency to be irrational, and you know evolution is the most rational agent of all, really. Mm-hmm. So if we do these things that look on the face of it irrational, it's because in the broader scheme of things, evolution discovered that they were rational in the long term for the survival mm. of your genes. Um, so that's one, so, and, and the likely reason that we prioritise immediate small gains over more distant bigger mm. gains is that a smaller, an immediate one is more certain okay. because yeah. anything can happen between now and the future. So if, for example, if you're paying into a pension, you might think, well what happens if the economy collapses and my pension's not going to be worth anything in 30 years time, mm. whereas if I, if I keep my money, then I can spend it now. You know? And I can do those house repairs that I also need doing. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are all of these things. So I, I think a lot of our kind of actions or, or inaction around mm-hmm. climate is, is that sort of tendency mm-hmm. to, you know, the, the, the gains that we get from taking climate action are at some unspecified point in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and we prefer to keep our resources. Yeah. But, you I know, there's... Sorry. There's yeah. Well, I was going to say, there's also the other thing that... Um, mm-hmm. the the sort of doing thing for your something for yourself versus doing something for the greater good, mm. and it's a similar dynamic. If you do it for um, yourself, um, then you definitely get the reward. If you do it for the greater good of everybody, um, even though that may bring you a bigger reward in the long run, it's more uncertain, mm. and partly because it's further off in the future, but partly also because other people are uncertain, and you sort of think, okay, I'm going to do this thing for the collective good, but for for it to work, everyone has. To else has to do their bit as well mm. and I can't guarantee that they will so there's an uncertainty there and so I'm going to go for the more certain smaller reward that I know will ha- that mm. I'll get versus the, you know, the other so a lot of it is to do with weighing uncertainties mm. unfortunately you know climate change is a certainty according to science mm. um, it's a certainty yeah okay. so we know for sure mm. it's going to happen if we don't um, stop pumping carbon into the air Okay. But that's a logical thing, mm-hmm. and logic, unfortunately, isn't a huge driver on our behaviour. Wow. <laughs> that's one <laughs> thing we've learned. We're not really um, 
we're not we haven't really evolved mm. to make logic the main driver of what we do I mean it's, it somewhat has an effect yeah 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 but still when you're faced with a hungry child needs dinner made for them versus mm. the long term future of the planet <laughs> mm. um, you know you'll turn on the gas and yeah. you'll cook your child dinner yeah, so you know there, there are all of these you know mm. factors yeah I think because like if we think about it we can actually think of future but it's so interesting that like actually in fact like actually what we do tends to be towards the short term mm. like gain because mm. I think people are talking about you know oh climate is changing we need to act um, and I actually see like some movements you know like at UCL they started to um, charge less for the people who bring a cup like mm. a reusable cup yeah. um, for the coffee or anything which is amazing yeah um, and so I don't know when it started but like seeing all these things like kind of I think is making people realise oh we actually need to take an action and so yes yeah. that there can be I mean, I, I think that's great that we're seeing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a risk that people will um, see that as evidence that we're taking action and therefore mm. that we don't need to worry. I see. And oh, this is hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and there is, I think there is some evidence that, that this does sort of happen, that people, you sort of think, right, we've got to do something, and then you start to see things happening and you go, phew, mm-hmm. th- th- things are being done, so, ah. so I don't need to worry anymore. Um, but there's all sorts of you know weird effects that um, that come into play where you know you know you you might make something um, mm. you might sort of decarbonize some type of activity and therefore people do more of it like mm. you, like people might start drinking more coffee because they don't feel as guilty about wasting the coffee cups anymore because mm. they're you know, um, or, or you know so there there, is, there are these um, unintended consequences of, of isolated actions and I, I think one of the problems. Um, that we face collectively is that nobody really has the big picture mm. um, on what what it is that we need to do. It's not enough to just take an action. You need to be sure that that action is ultimately um, all the consequences, the spin-off consequences of that action mm. are also going to be working in the same direction of making change. So it's really difficult. And I've come to the conclusion that the only solution that is robust would be to um, price carbon at source. Mm, okay. So just to say, if you take a litre of oil out of the ground or a litre of natural gas or whatever, um, there's a cost associated with that and you have to pay that cost before you can use it. And mm. that cost might be $100. So instead of you know being able to sell the oil for huge amounts of money, mm-hmm. first you have to pay off the cost. So that, you, know, you know that um, sooner or later it's going to find its way into the air. Mm-hmm. So if you take it out of the ground... We want you to pay the cost of it being in the air right here, right now. Mm. Um, and that way, um, the carbon cost of everything you do is is reflected in, the, in what it costs to, to do that thing. So, for example, buying a cup of coffee suddenly becomes really expensive mm-hmm. because the, co- the cup costs a lot, the coffee costs a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll drink less coffee, but you know, <laughs> that's as it should be. I see. Um, so personally, you know, I think that's the only thing we can do because I don't think we can change human behaviour mm. other than via um, this short term thing of money which we all know people understand mm. I see wow is there any other other things that you found oh like this is also one of the things that people should know um, in right. terms of like mm. maybe taking action or 
You mean in terms of <laughs> you mean things that they that they should know about why we are yeah. not acting. Yeah. Um, well, there's a few. I mean, there's a, the, the, there's quite a lot of ways that our beliefs are not really connected to reality. <laughs> okay. Um, that I think are affecting our behaviour. So yeah, our beliefs are a sort of a mental model that you use to shape your actions and we feel as though our beliefs are a reflection of what's really going on in the world mm -hmm. out, out there um, but that's an illusion okay. in fact our beliefs are you know by and large not really only very loosely connected to what's going on in the world wow. <laughs> but we feel as though they're oh. a really ac accurate representation and a really good example of that is just vision like I believe that my eyes are transmitting this huge picture that I see in front of me uh -huh. of the world all around, you know, it's sort of almost 270 degrees worth of vision. But actually, what my eyes are reporting on is this tiny little window mm -hmm. um, of maybe a few degrees wide. So at any one moment, all I can see of the world is this tiny little window. Mm -hmm. um, and what, but what happens is that my eyes jump around mm -hmm. and collect a lot, of, a lot of these windows, and then my brain fills in the rest. So what I can actually see with my eyes is a tiny proportion of what I think I can see. The rest of it has been generated by my brain. Oh. And, you know, it, it's, <laughs> it's very hard to convince yourself of that, but the, uh, you know, the best known demonstration is the blind spot. You know, you have okay. a blind spot, you have quite a big part of your visual field that you actually can't see, but you're never aware of it because no. your brain has just painted in that gap with, with something. And if you try and look over there, yeah. <laughs> of course the blind spot has moved, so you can't catch it. <laughs> you, can never, you can never see your blind spot. Wow. Um, so um, that's, a, that's an example from visual perception, but it's also just true of our beliefs about um, how reality is constructed. Mm. And, and so you know, we fool ourselves all the time. So I've fooled myself for many years that um, the climate change problem would be solved by scientists and by technology. You know? mm -hmm. um, I, and I had all of these rationalizations. I'd chuck stuff in the bin and I would think, you know, I know that this is only going to landfill, but sooner or later somebody's going to invent a way of using what's in the landfill and, and we'll be able to claim it all back again, so it's okay, I can <laughs> keep doing this. Yeah. Um, and I realized, of course, that I was just fooling myself. Mm. Actually, I know in my heart of hearts that it goes into landfill and it eventually finds its way into the ocean and then into the stomach of a whale or something like that. And, and, you know, I, I know that I'm just polluting, but because we have this roadside rubbish collection, um, mm -hmm. and everybody else is doing the same thing, and it feels like society is, I'm, I'm doing what's being asked of me by society, trying to be a good citizen. And so I fooled myself that that's good enough. Mm. And it's only when I logically sit down and think it through, I realize it's not, it's not good enough. Except it, I'm damaging the planet, and, yeah, and I'm just fooling myself if I think I'm not. So, I don't know how you get around that because we've got seven and a half billion people where we're all fooling ourselves mm. that, you know, <laughs> that the future is secure and that we'll, we'll be okay and our children will be okay and our grandchildren will be okay and we'll solve climate change and all the rest of it. But the evidence just doesn't stack up that way. Mm. I see. Yeah, I don't think like people know about these, you know, like scientific um, kind of aspect of like human beings. Um, well, I, that was my first time that I heard, and I right. well, I knew about the like say blind spot, but I've never thought that you know. Obviously, like because I I'm seeing everything, and so yeah, like it was really interesting to hear like oh actually, 
um, some bits that we don't really see are constructed by the brain mm. and so I think these things um, are quite interesting to know and also it'd be useful like for everyone so mm. I really hope that you know your talk yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then what you do is gonna you know gonna be listened to or heard by a lot of people what um <coughs> what action would you want to see people take once they understand about the, the mental blind spot as it, as it were like do you think people can change I don't know it's, I think it's just like interesting to know firstly um, it just gives people like for me when I hear like new things I you know I'm just impressed by that and mm. it just makes me more curious about what's going on and so I think it kind of has to um, that that's what I loved about you like you kind of gave the examples of like what's going on in human beings and then actually how it affects to the climate change um, and stuff and I, I think so like linking to the problem is like really important um, but obviously just raising the problem like oh this is going on like this is a problem mm. that doesn't really attract people yeah um, and so yeah. that's why like I said oh it's really interesting because you were not just like saying oh climate change is going on temperatures that are raising so we need to do something but you, you also said like actually you know like you know stepping back like this is what's going on in human beings and that's why we can't take an action so let's think about it more and, mm. you know I think that's what um, the power of like this knowledge um, that you have yeah so. I, yeah I mean I I would like to think that when, when people have more self-awareness about their own attitudes mm. like why you know when they when they understand why they're not taking action I, I like to imagine that they would then take action mm. <laughs> but I, I think I'm not convinced that mm-hmm. that that will necessarily happen mm. but but it might and I, I think one thing that's helped for me is the, the more I understand about why we and you know therefore I um, are acting the way that we do I feel less guilty about it mm. um, because I realize I'm it's not that I'm a bad person mm-hmm. I'm a product of evolution and I'm a product of the situation that we're in this is a global problem and it's very difficult to take individual action on a global problem mm-hmm. and I think and once you start feeling less guilty about something that in itself takes away a barrier to, to action oh, because there's a strange sort of paradoxical thing but you know if you confront people and make them feel guilty and blame them then they just put up walls and say go away I don't want to talk to you mm. I'm not going to believe anything you say because I, I don't like you you're not going to feel good you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think once um, once you sort of say to people you know it's okay to feel the way that you do and to do the things that you do you're not a bad person you're just a human being mm. um, nevertheless we have a problem <laughs> mm-hmm. but how are we going to solve it together type thing um, and so, so I think maybe once the barriers come down people may be more willing to, to work together to try and, and solve something and not to judge each other mm. and that's a really big um, thing in Extinction Rebellion which I was quite impressed about when I joined it was they have this one of their core principles they, they have these ten core principles and one of them is um, not blaming and shaming so not um, pointing the finger at people and saying why, do you, why are you flying on holiday and, mm. and you know why are you eating meat? You're a terrible, terrible human being. <laughs> They're saying it's fine. We all do these things. It, it's not you. It's the system that we're in. Uh-huh. Um, it's perfectly natural. Um, but you know, join join us in, in trying to make things change. I see. And I, I found that quite a positive message. Mm. And so you know, I'm hoping that will have an effect. Yeah. 
And so these things we can find it online. The, yeah. So extension yeah. rebellion. Yeah, it's got a website and it has all of the principles and all of those things and um, various. Um, so I've, I'm part of a subgroup in it that's called mm-hmm. Scientists for Extension Rebellion. Okay. So we've sort of gathered together um, some of the um, scientific material that we're trying to mm-hmm. make accessible to non-scientists, so that people oh, can okay. visit and, and understand a bit more. I see. So that's the website, like science. What yeah, was it called again? It's called Scientists for Extinction Rebellion. Science so for scientists. Scientists yeah. for extinction. extinction. So if you, if you Google that, hopefully yeah. it will come up. And cool. um, yeah, so just trying to kind of get the message out there. And there's a little bit on there about the psychology of mm-hmm. it as well. And you write um, an article for for them. Yeah, I wrote a blog post um, okay. about about psychology, which was similar to the talk okay. that you saw. Cool. So yeah, slowly. Cool. Slowly trying to make it. No, no. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> um, well, so, thank you. And, no, thank um, you. You know, yeah, I yeah. appreciate having the opportunity to kind of air air some thoughts. You know, yeah, I think amazing. Really I learned something as well. So, thank you very much. So that was the interview. I hope you find it useful. There's so many things that I want to mention from what she said during the interview.、Um, honestly, so much learning. Firstly, when she said how she's observed the change in London over the past twenty years, it was really shocking, and I think it, I could see the similar thing in Japan too.、Um, especially in the past few years, I've seen a lot more natural disaster taking place compared to, you know, the the last decade, and the damage from it has been becoming bigger and bigger. So I think we've been kind of noticing these things. But as she also mentioned, we tend to focus on like short-term gain rather than long-term, which now hopefully you understand the consequence of it. So I hope that even though you might be already doing it, but I hope more and more people, including myself, will start to take an initiative to protect our environment. Kate is also writing articles for the website called Scientists for Extinction Rebellion. Where you can find a lot more information on this matter, I put down the link in the description of this episode. They've got Facebook and Twitter account as well.、Um, finally, there's also a talk that Kate has given. The title is "Psychology of Climate in Action," which is different from what I've listened to, but、um, it's got a lot of useful knowledge as well. So, if you're interested, I put down the link as well so that you can go listen to it. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Again, I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Please let me know how you found this episode. Anything that you liked, anything you wanted to hear more, anything you felt from this interview. Also, if there are topics that you want me to do on this podcast, feel free to share with me as well. More episodes are coming up, so stay tuned for the next one. I hope you're having a great weekend. I hope you're not getting cold like me, and I'll see you very soon. Bye.